Thanks for downloading this podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy wherever they get their podcasts. Hello, everybody. I welcome to the world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Midweek Motorsport Series 16, episode 23. Uh, a particularly difficult technical evening. Uh, thanks very much to Johnny Palmer, who has stepped in to the breach. We've uh, got a bit of a, an issue with that London internet thing. Anyway, it's just ones and zeros pinging around in the ether. I have got no idea, but... Fantastic. Somebody has pressed London's magic button and we've gone straight on at turn one and we won't be able to score any points, except we're back in it. All right, I know we're a few minutes late, but sorry about that. Uh, no Tim Gray tonight because of that, but on a packed programme tonight, I'll do this. We're going to have all the usual features, including some guests. Uh, if the technology holds out, we'll have Sam Smith just after nine o'clock this evening as uh, we take a mid-season look at Formula E through the eyes of Sam and his new book, which is called Formula E Racing for the Future. And a cracking read it is as well. We've got breaking news from IMSA. We've got bike news. We'll have Formula One team by team uh, with Nick Damon uh, as well, of course. And the breaking news is from IMSA. Shea Adam coming up in a little while. But I can still see all of the... uh, uh, all of the tweets coming in. Hello to Matt Hawkey Hawkins, Dave Monks, and many more of you who would normally be going to Le Mans right now. I know it's a bizarre one, uh, isn't it? Uh, Blue Fiend, Blue Fiend is uh, tuning into tonight's show, uh, and then Team Walkenhorst as well in tonight. Hello to the Colonel. Uh, family dinner tonight, but he's cast, catching the podcast at Seven Sisters at, uh, at Wigan. Uh, of course. Uh, hello to Barry Bond. He says, I should be on the M6 now. Getting there, lunchtime Thursday. Quick fresh, fresh num. Fire the barbecue. He's talking about Le Mans, uh, of course, as well. Uh, hello to Safe Phil, to Steen Race Boy, and to Dave Alcock and Right Turn Lover, who is tuned in tonight. RTL, nice to have your company, uh, mate. Also, to Carol Brink tuning in from here and near Thermal, but can you speak up a bit while they clean the Architoke seed variety? Uh, Laguna Seca. Got some Laguna Seca news as well at the moment. Uh, Adrian Bell is walking across northern Spanish coast after a superb Catalan Motor GP. Great to see fans back in the stand. We'll be talking two wheels uh, later on as well. And uh, we'll uh, say hello to Ian McCarthy. Uh, and to Serafina, uh, pulling a late one, looking forward to the Portimao promo. We should be able to get JP in uh, for that. Listening live, Ke- says Kevin Kane, interrupted by work. That doesn't stop the audio almost uh, finished. 
as well. Alexander Orkinson burned from the London Concourse yesterday, fading a bit. Uh, and Matthew Hindman listening in tonight. Uh, so listening in here on uh, RSL, uh, RS2 uh, this evening. Uh, we'll try and get Tim Gray in just a moment, but let's first of all do the top story. Play the jingle, JP. All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Uh, and it's sad news to start off tonight's programme with the news of the death of uh, Marceau Auger and our Formula One correspondent, Nick Damon, uh, will join us now. And uh, you'll understand it, uh, it will be without the uh, hooray. Uh, been battling mm. for quite a long time, Nick. He, he had a double lung transplant in 2013, if memory serves. Um, I, I've met him at Le Mans a, a couple of times. I've met his son uh, as well. Uh, he just struck me as a, a nice guy who enjoyed what he was doing. Yeah, I think I think the, it's pretty obvious from the outpouring of uh, of sadness and, uh, and 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 jolly stories about Mansoor. He was he was much loved and, and respected in the paddock. I mean, a, a guy a Saudi Saudi born but uh, Paris educated, um, working with his father's company, Technique d'Avant Garde. Um, yeah, it, at the age of 26, got involved in Formula One with Williams, um, brought in the help bringing that Saudi sponsorship that made the green and white Williams FW7 and, and started the success of that team. Uh, won a couple of championships with them, obviously, t- tag um, both the, the Porsche engine for uh, McLaren, which he was much more associated with, and of course, tag Hoyer watches as well. Um, so you can see an incredibly successful in, industrial business, but always always an incredibly happy and, and low key guy. I mean, he was, yeah, he bought into McLaren, he was in. A huge mover and shaker behind the uh, the scenes, but just didn't just just a, a really normal, pleasant guy. Um, you know, no airs, no graces, um, and seemed to get on with everybody. He had that kind of everyman appeal, um, and it's, it's it's very sad. I mean, I, I didn't think you know, I was so surprised when, when I heard he passed away. One reason he was only sixty eight because he just mm. he'd done it all for so many years and from so from so young and. They worked through through McLaren initially with Ron, and then obviously Ron and he fell out, and then uh, towards him more with the Bahrainis in, this, in the later iteration. But yeah, you know, always involved and always uh, incredibly popular. Uh, we never really got to the bottom of the falling out with with Ron. It was always just described rather diplomatically as uh, a personal disagreement, um, mm. and in the spotlight of formula one that's that's quite unusual well yeah i mean i you know obviously it's not the time to discuss this but i can honestly tell you i couldn't discuss you i i have i've never ever been told what the problem was what what happened it was an incredibly close relationship that collapsed um so it's obviously quite a serious disagreement i don't think it was just like oh, shall we have honda engines or not i think it was a a more seriously, but obviously it was, it was part of that 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 disagreement a couple of years later when he came back after recovering from that double uh, lung transplant that he you know, was really behind the that the the move to take Ron away from the direct running of the team. Now obviously Ron had shot himself in the foot slightly with with putting uh, betting all his money on on Honda and then then having the problems there for those couple of years. But yeah, um, but yeah, but has you know Zach Brown another fan working through yeah. So so yeah, it's, it's very sad. I mean his son has, t- has taken his business interest. A couple of years ago, so he had been in, in semi-retirement. Um, yes, yeah, so he sorely missed, sorely missed in the paddock. Yeah, uh, his son took over from him in the McLaren Group and uh, on the board of TAG. 
etc. Some some time ago. So the family will still be represented, Nick. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. They have they always have a percentage, obviously, of uh, McLaren Group. Uh, they're very committed to Formula One. They're very committed to also some some other clubs of technology, which kind of you know take their their, their lead from Formula One. So uh, yeah, absolutely, it's, it's great to see the uh, AJ family will continue to be within F1. Uh, so a quick swap to RS2, but otherwise it should be a fairly standard programme. We'll, we will hear from Tim, uh, working on getting Tim back uh, even as we speak. Uh, a packed programme tonight with all the usual features. Coming up just after nine o'clock, uh, we'll have uh, Sam Smith talking to us about Formula E and his brand new book, Racing for the Future. We've got that breaking news from Cher Adam to come as well. Plus your comments please at spectatainment Div Cook says I've visions of technicians running around the background with two blue tack super glue and the all important duct tape uh, not a million miles off uh, Johnny says LA Filipponi fixing the station by running around outside and holding up a long antenna till the reception came in did you do that I bet you did that Nick you're you're old enough Johnny's just tweeted to me oh, yeah. to... did you do that with a um a, a TV aerial when mm-hmm. you did you ever take your own TV away on holiday with yes, you? Yes, and you had the little handheld aerial. Yes, that only worked. That only worked when you had your arm cranked at an impossible angle and pointing up and out the window at the same time. Uh, and you thought, well, I can't, I can't see a TV. The other three people can, and it's kind of like, well, this is no good for anybody. Can you say um, that? How's that? How's that? Is that better? Better yeah. or worse? Oh. Better or worse? No, don't move! Don't move! What do you mean, don't move? I'm standing on one foot, one hand in my ear, and the and the aerial stuck out of a window, and I can't see the telly. Yeah, but it's fine for us. Oh, great. Yeah, exactly. Well, well done, everybody who's got that together, and hello to Donath- Jonathan Main, who's having a very stressful evening. Um, uh, we hope that that subside Jonathan take a deep breath and listen to us uh, talking complete nonsense for most of the time we're glad to have your company and uh, wish you all the best uh, Sarah Rigby's tuned in at the weekend enjoyed the 24 hours of the Nürburgring which of course wasn't 15 hours short uh, hello to Jesse hooray for RS2 from Sully Sunny Warm California there'll be plenty of uh, RS2 broadcasting this weekend friday saturday imza saturday sunday will be the eight hours of portimao more news about all of that as we go on uh, nick we'll come back to you if you don't mind in a wee while for the formula one team by team so don't go too far away get yourself a, a wee beverage I, i'm afraid it's it's more bad news at the start of the program tonight with the news that long-time broadcaster and uh, sports producer barry hinchcliffe died earlier on this week uh, and uh, joining us now is the editor-in-chief of Racer and Racer.com, Lawrence Foster, who was actually instrumental in the start of this programme when it was the Autosport radio show before it became uh, Midweek Motorsport, and who spent, uh, well, I was going to say, some happy years, Lawrence, with BHP. And Barry, were, were they happy years? just just as a human being you know barry was was a mentor to everybody and i think um you know very very sadly missed and of course coming from a different era and he did come from a different era but he'd done it all a lot of our listeners will remember the bhp productions but 
Barry had done commentary. He'd done interviews. He 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 pretty much picked up a camera when he when he had to do. He knew the business inside out. Absolutely, and I tell you what, when when you say about Barry the interviewer, I I think that was the one thing that really sort of you know put put BHP on the map. You look at some of the uh, you know the amazing seventies and eighties WRC coverage, and it was just made. It was the first to me, the first sort of motorsports TV where. You know, you got to the heart of the characters and the, and the story was told through the characters. Mm. And so much of that was just the way Barry approached it. And this this sort of this avuncular manner where, uh, you know, it, it was a chat with the drivers. You know, one thing I was saying the other day that, um, you know, way before Kimi Raikkonen became a sort of a cult hero for what he didn't say, you know, Barry was turning uh, scand- monosyllabic Scandinavians into into heroes, you know, because of the fact that he did get uh, Stig Blomqvist to say more than one syllable. You know, he did turn Hanu Mikkola and Ari Vatten and, and Henry Toivon into into guys who you actually cared about. And I think that was the secret to BHP. It wasn't merely just showing an event. It was actually telling a story. And that, that all came through Barry. You've hit on something there that I've just realised is very, very important with Barry Hinchcliffe. He was a people person, Lars, wasn't he? He was he absolutely... Was. I remember you asking me to come down to London to do a spoof voiceover for a British touring car round at Donington, where I had to be very much the uh, <laughs> Pathé News. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Donington, and here's the Spitfire down at the bottom of the hill. And, and uh, do you remember that? Can yes, you remember that? I do, I do. And, and, I, and I came there wide-eyed and... and delighted that uh, that you'd asked me to do that. And Barry was, you know, as ever, was there hanging around. He stopped us working because he was telling stories. And I just remember laughing so... We, we laughed more than we worked. <laughs> well, Barry, Barry would bring... You know, that attitude was... I mean, he was, he was totally genuine. An evening with Barry was, um, you know, a splendid affair all round. But that whole mindset as well... Barry would really, you know, anybody who worked for BHP, and there was there was a great crew there when I was there. You know, there, there was Mari Nicholson, there was Steve Saint, there was there was Simon Fitzgerald, and they'd all basically been empowered by Barry to sort yes. of, you know, just be themselves and and, you know, don't be afraid to sort of do funny things. Don't be afraid to be, uh, you know, uh, totally left field. Just make sure that you you give us the story, mm. and. Um, British touring cars, which when when I joined, you know, my main thing was um, working with a with a British touring car championship team, and I think one of the things was was Barry would give us enough rope to hang ourselves, <laughs> and, and sometimes you know genuinely we would go too far. E- either Mari would get a, a phone call from Alan Gow saying uh, I don't want them to do that again, or or sort of Barry would uh, you know pitch it and say. Um, I think you went a little over the top there, but but the great thing is he would actually allow you to go too far in the first place. Uh, d- never bitter, uh, could have been because you know, broadca- in broadcasting particularly, things change, fashions change, and uh, in, in in some ways was BHP overtaken by by change, but but even then, Barry never seemed to lose the smile on his face. No, I, I think that BHP was 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 the right company at the right time. Where very good. You look at the WRC. You look at the you know the the golden era of super touring and the BCC on on the BBC, and it was giving a a total package. It was it it wasn't live broadcast, but it was just this beautifully tailored story. 
you know, even as a kid, way before order sport, way before, you know, getting involved with BHP, the highlight of your Saturday lunchtime when you switched on World of Sport was Dickie Davis basically saying, you know, we're going to have a report from the the San Remo rally or, or the Thousand Lakes. You know, you'd, you'd willingly sit through two hours or so, it felt like, of wrestling from Bradford King's Hall or whatever it was. Racing and from Catterick. Oh, lordy, some of those places, yeah. But you'd, you'd, then, you'd then get 20 minutes of gold, and it was just so so beautifully executed, so beautifully tailored. You know, it, it, I understand now the fact that we are getting, you know, every, everything is live, but there was, there was something just so, so special about a, a well-thought-out story arc in this little mm. self-contained package, and, and you'd be waiting for these... You know these nuggets, and and that's really you know the key to the the success of the two liter era of the, the British Touring Car Championship as well. It, it, yes. it wasn't live coverage; it was just these these beautifully tailored forty five fifty minute slots with um, you know a beginning, a middle, an and end. an end, a story. But people don't remember that they weren't live, Lawrence. They really don't. No, no. And, and the marriage of BHP, which was Barry, and yes. and what Murray Walker brought to that and the yeah. the intense professionalism and preparedness i mean how many overnights did you and barry spend with with murray because even he wanted to make it sound live even though it wasn't well it was you'd basically so you'd, you'd do the the races on the weekend the you know the the, the tapes would all be brought back to uh to london tapes. i mean the tapes well, the, the a BHP um, outside production was, you know, a couple of estate cars full of gear. You know, you'd, you'd meet up with the the camera crew there at the track. You know, dish out dish out the um, the tapes, make sure everybody had enough batteries for the day. You know, give give them a fiver to grab some uh, some lunch. But then it was basically the the edit was done then on on the on the Monday and into the Tuesday, and and then. Uh, yeah, Murray was Murray was let loose, and yeah, because you had to put the in cars in there because the in cars weren't being being back live; they were all individual individual cameras. That's right. Yeah, little little Sony cameras sort of hung in the cars, and uh, you know the the deal was um, it wasn't even you know to begin with it wasn't one per car; it, it was it was one per team. Yeah. So um, you know, and and choosing to who you'd fit for the storyline, you know, second guessing. Um, but all, all that was then put together, and, and, and again, in that Barry Hinchcliffe style, Murray was allowed to be Murray, and, and Murray, the perfectionist, allowed Murray to sound so spontaneous and so on top of things, because he, he, would, he would work for you know, hours and hours getting every single beat right and, yes. and you know, every single bon mot. And, um, and, and as you say, it, it sounded live and it sounded spontaneous. Well, he used to interrupt himself. As if it he was did. live. He did. It was and, brilliant. And, and, but he knew in advance, obviously, that he was going to interrupt himself. And <laughs> knew, knew the exact point, the sentence would end when he did interrupt himself. And... But that wouldn't have happened without Barry. I, I, you know, we, we, we know how great Murray was, and we know what perfection is, but, but Barry understood that about the people that worked for them, and he let the people that worked for them. Yes. If, if, yeah. if I may say so, and, and whether it was you, or Murray, or, 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 or Murray, or anybody all people who I've loved working with down through the years, um, he let them be themselves and bring yes. themselves to the broadcast. And, and not everybody did that, Lawrence. No, and, and, and the whole 
BHP, there was basically buried DNA which ran through the whole of BHP <laughs> and whether it was rallying, Very whether it's touring cars, British superbikes. House style, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you look at if you look at a seventies rally broadcast, um, you know a lot of a lot of what it was doing there in terms of you know setting the scene, putting the thing in contact, bringing in the storylines, um, you know, even sort of the fact that you would Barry was was really big on the fact that um, you know music had to be sort of like there was a knowing quality, you know, you would you would use music from the moment, so. A 70s rally film, you know, listen to that, and it's always, you know, Jean-Michel Jarre synthesizer yes. music. Yes, But the stuff we were allowed to use in BCC broadcast was, it, it was eclectic, but, but it was always of the here and now. I remember that, uh, you know, being a fan of the baggy scene, whenever we had a touring car race at uh, Alton Park, we, we always used to have to include some charlatans in the, in the background Excellent. music. And that that all comes from you know basically Bar- Barry's ethos and and you know the DNA, but also you know from 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 Steve Saint and Simon Fitzgerald and and from Mari as well. They they were proper BHP people, you know they they understood and and they carried the uh, the BHP DNA and and just allowed us to um, to do what we wanted to do basically. How, how much how much Lawrence uh, does current motorsport production? Whether it's you know live or pre-recorded, I, I particularly I, I look at things like the BT coverage, and I know they're they're using the the world feed as everybody uses the world feed. But the stuff that mm. goes around it, how much that does that owe to what Barry was doing and the quality of the interviews? You mentioned the interviews beforehand. How much does that owe to the throwback of of Barry? I think I think a lot. I, I think I think you see the BH even you know look at um, you know Sky Sports Formula One coverage and you know access to the drivers in terms of bringing them out as personalities, knowing that um, you know you, you're building up to a race not by merely saying this is what happened in qualifying, but yes. you know bringing out personalities, putting them into situations, you know get it. It's that whole sort of story arc where you're not just waiting for the uh, you know the lights to go and then you know waiting for the flag. It, it's that context. It's that storyline. And not being afraid to ask the hard question, not just how do you feel or how were the tyres. Uh, I'm sorry, Dave Miggins, that wasn't your best day at the office. You know. Yes. And, yeah. and that was absolutely Barry, wasn't it? Well, a couple, a couple of absolute classic examples where where you think you know the, the these these little vignettes are so memorable you obviously remember you know 92 the the silverson finale the bcc yes. one um cleland and soper but the fact that every touring car fan you know the man's an animal you know is 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 right up there with any sort of steve mcqueen quote from limon in terms of you know uh, bring bring it out whatever and I remember a, a brilliant one in in '96, um, Brands Hatch, end of the race, um, tracking down this <laughs> Barry tracking down Paul Radisic, who'd been taken off by uh, Roberto Ravaglia on the on the opening lap. So you know, you know, obviously the cramped Brands paddock, drivers can't really get away from uh, from Barry and his roaming camera. Um, comes up to Radisic and says, you know, well, well, what happened, Paul? What happened? You know, in that in that sort of avuncular Barry Absolutely, way. absolutely. And, Your favourite uncle type of way. Yes. Oh, you can yeah. talk it's, to me. You can chat. talk to it's me. It's fine. Yes. Yes. But, but 
Paul Radisic, he basically says, you know, I, I was on the outside through uh, through Druids and, and Revalier, you know, he, he sort of, uh, he shouldered me off. And Barry sort of says, he says, well, are you going to have a word with him? And Paul says, yeah, I'll probably have a word. And Barry says, well, can you do it now? And can we come along? <laughs> so... <laughs> So they take Paul Radisic to the to the Schnitzer garage and basically um, film Paul, who is obviously slightly uncomfortable that, um, you know, he's been kind of put into this situation, but at the same time is, is going along with it because, you know, Barry's asking him to. And and Brilliant. the next 30 seconds, you basically see Revalia ripping Paul Radisic a new one. <laughs> And, and off the back of that, obviously, uh, Murray Walker comes back in with, with a classic line as well. But I, I suggest anybody um, anybody look up, uh, yeah, Revalia Radisic, Brands Hatch, and, and, and see see Barry at, at, at the zenith of his, um, his abilities. Top of his game. Top of his game. He'll be much missed by everybody that knew him. I didn't know him anywhere near as, as much as, as you did, Lawrence. Uh, so condolences to you, to the rest of his friends, and, of course, the family and the wider BHP family as well. Lawrence Foster, thanks for joining us with those great memories of Barry Hinchcliffe. Hey, my, my pleasure. Thanks, John. Thanks, Lawrence. Sorry, uh, that's the uh, editor-in-chief of Racer and Racer Magazine and Racer.com, Lawrence Foster. Great memories, great memories of Barry Hinchcliffe. And we pass on condolences uh, to his family and friends and everybody in that BHP family, and of course, Monster uh, Auger and everyone who met him through motor racing or McLaren. Bit of an odd one tonight, but Tim Gray is with us now. Uh, he's not up in London, uh, but we've moved him off to the bunker um, because of London's issues. Hello, I'm, I'm, I'm giving him time. Hello, Tim. Hello, Tim. This is Hind of Towers calling. Bonjour, bonjour. Excellent. <laughs> well done to Johnny Palmer as well, and to you. Johnny Palmer, um, no point. No, I think douze point uh, from he everybody. the internet, John. He didn't break the internet. You know, he couldn't break the internet. Even him with all of his Blackpool videos, he couldn't break the internet. Um uh, stay with us, Tim. We'll get you uh, with Nick in a moment to do Formula One team by team. Uh, and still to come tonight, hooray. we've got... Hooray. Yes, hooray. Yes, get your list Get your list ready. Uh, but I, I want to say hello to Cher Adam now, who's joining us live from the States. Hello, Cher. Hello. Yes, excellent. See, that's good. Very good. Very good. Uh, breaking news coming out of IMSA. We'll talk a bit about the weekend in a, in a sec. Um, I'm not sure anybody knew this was coming out today. GTD Pro starts next year. And um, we now know that for the first year, at least, it's going to look pretty much like GTD does. Uh, yeah. And the the kind of funny thing about this uh, regulation that was announced today and the specifications is that it looks very much like GTD does, but with a lot of the similarities to GTLM. Um, the cars are all going to be using the same set of tires, which is the biggest difference to me from GTLM. So it will be the S9M Michelin that we see in GTD this year. But basically, drive time, as I understand it, uh, the requirements of the driver lineup, that's going to look very much like GTLM does this year. The cars are going to have red number panels on them. 
very much like GTLM. Mm. Um, and they'll have the testing allocation of GTLM as well as the qualifying requirements. It won't be a split qualifying like it is for GTD this year. So it, it's a step in the right direction to try and separate the two classes. But yeah, it, it very much came out of the blue. Um, also hearing that the tyres may be different for 2023. Um, yes. Now for most, of course, for most of the manufacturers in, uh, Michelin are working on that, by the way. I've, I've kind of skipped over that because it's another year away. Um, uh, uh, the for most manufacturers share that won't make that much difference because they've been working with the S9 tire already. However, for Corvette, that's that is going to be a big difference for them. They've got yeah. two big problems there. Number one, they're working with a single tire when they've been working yep. with confidential tires up to three different compounds and constructions over a weekend, uh, and. The second is, of course, they've got to get their GT Le Mans car BOP down to something around GT3 pace because they're not. We have to say this. We got asked at the weekend a couple of times on the Nurburgring 24. They're not building a GT3 version of the C8R. They're going to use the car they're using next weekend, this weekend. Correct. Uh, and the understanding is that that car needs to be made available for customer teams if they choose to try to run it. And there are teams that are interested in running a Chevrolet Corvette C8R in a GT3 specification. But you nailed it with that, John, because Corvette racing for, gosh, 22 years now have been running on different specifications of tires in terms of being able to test going out and picking out the slightly different compound for every weekend. Typically, each of the GTLM manufacturers comes with two per weekend, but they've had that advantage. Now, coming back into running the S9M, which by all means is still a very good tire, oh, yeah. it's going to be a difficult process for them, particularly when you think about the mid-engine cars in IMSA and in GTD. They have massively struggled trying to get heat into the S9M. They didn't have issues with the S8. They were hoping that tire allocation would go back and forth between the S8 and the S9 again for next year. But now knowing that this is what you're going to have, it effectively turns every racetrack that we have on the calendar remaining into a test session for 2022. And yeah, it's a very good point. Um, that's the ways ahead. What we have got this weekend coming up on Friday and Saturday here on RS2, which is where we've moved next door from <laughs> RS1 tonight for technical reasons. Um, and thank you to IMSA Radio for loaning us their airwaves. Here on RS2, Friday and Saturday, it is Detroit. And for the first time, we've got Corvettes at Detroit because Yay. normally they would have been at Le Mans um, doing test weekend. Now, it's not effect effectively. It's not a competition for Corvette this weekend. No, it's not. Um, but the, and a couple of notes on that. Uh, the first of which, it keeps the Taylor streak of podiums guaranteed to continue because since 2015, at least one of the Taylor brothers has stood on the podium every race of the Detroit race, uh, the Belle Isle Grand Prix. So that's pretty cool to keep going. Uh, two of the four Corvette drivers, though, have never raced on the streets of Belle Isle, Antonio Garcia and Nick Tandy. So one driver per car. And if you think that these drivers are just going to take it easy and drive round and round and you know, not really consider it to be a competition could not be further from the truth. These drivers, 
And more importantly, the crews are treating this as a warm-up to the six hours of the Glen yeah. because they haven't raced since March. So they're trying to use this to get ahead of everybody else. BMW have been testing at the Glen. Uh, WeatherTech Racing was testing at the Glen. Corvette was not. They are using this as their, hey, let's get back into the swing of things. Uh, and uh, talking about people who are there for the first time there, uh, yeah. somebody who's going to miss it is Andy Lally this weekend because, of course, in GTD, this is not a round of the full championship. Correct. This is a sprint-only round. Uh, FAF Motorsport had always planned on missing this round. Initially, the sprint race was supposed to take place at their home track of Canadian Tire Motorsport Park, and they were going to participate in that, as far as I understand, but not coming down across the border, although there was good border news for Canadians today that they went off to quarantine going back and forth between the U.S. and Canada. Still not open to Americans, though. Come on, please, Trudeau, let that happen. Um, but it also means that Wright Motorsport and Magnus, or Archangel Racing, are not participating and kind of interesting because they are two of the full season bronze categorized drivers yes. that are not taking place but we do still have bronze drivers in gtd and as you rightly said john we have 13 rookies to the track this weekend two of them being in gtlm as i mentioned two of them being in the dpi category kevin magnuson naturally and loic duval those are two guys who have very good resumes uh, to be rookies at a track and then a whole slew of drivers in gtd but with 205 minutes of practice for a 100-minute race. Yes, that is correct. Uh, those drivers should have no excuse for not getting up to speed. And it's only 190 minutes for the pro classes, but still, I'm not looking for anybody complaining of lack of track time. Uh, are we expecting this weekend? Oh, by the way, we've got a check here on RS2. Scroll down to the bottom of the page. Do it now, right? See down there at the bottom, you'll see yeah. the, the live schedule on Friday and Saturday. Uh, we're the only live, free, unblocked and uh, uninterrupted coverage. Uh, and, of course, we've got most of it in sound and vision as well where available. But the audio's never, never blocked. Um, are we expecting something from General Motors? Because we're effectively in the shadow of the, the Renaissance Centre, the Rensen, as they call it, their headquarters. In terms of... LMDH. They've been keeping their powder dry for a while. Actually, I thought it was going to be announced a few weeks ago. I was sitting on my hands going, mm, 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 <laughs> sort of Chandler-like. Um, yes. But um, they didn't come. This weekend, they're on home ground. Are we going to f hear th that it's going to be Corvette or it's going to be uh, another GM brand, Cadillac, in LMDH? Will that happen this weekend? Well, I didn't think so before but the indy 500 was won by honda a lot of attention has been on honda um i think a good opportunity to swing it back in the direction of chevrolet would be to take advantage of the chevrolet sports car classic so we could we know all the big wigs are going to be there we could be hearing something exciting i'm not going to hold my breath just quite yet because i feel like i've done that a few too many times for these big announcements and they just haven't come but I won't be surprised if one does. Hmm. Uh, any other news that we've got to get through uh, um, next? 
Yes, in terms of GTD, I uh, just wanted to mention we've had nine possible podiums this year. We've had eight different cars standing on the podium, so a very strong season in terms of uh, mixing it up. And we've got a couple of driver changes and cars as far as it's concerned for this weekend. Uh, Misha Goikberg and Marco Mapelli will be sharing the Grasser Racing Lamborghini, which, as I understand it, as I learned last week, it's an old chassis from Dream Racing. It might not even be in livery in time oh. for the racing event because there's quite a bit of backup as far as Detroit is concerned, getting cars stickered up. Okay. Uh, Kenny Habul and Mikhail Grenier are teaming up in the Sun Energy One Mercedes. I understand that this is basically a warm up for them to get ready for the six hours of the Glen. Uh, one Porsche total in this race, which thank Shocker. you, Tom Moore. He did yeah. fit it all into one sheet. But yeah, Cat Leg who's won this race twice, and then Rob Ferriel, who has never raced on a street course before. So it's going to be a fun weekend for them. Uh, and Cher Adam will join me and Jeremy Shaw in the Haggerty Global Broadcast Centre Friday and Saturday here on RS2. And Cher, will you come back now or two for a bit of IndyCar news? Oh, sure. Twist my arm. Okay. Thank you. Hope you get where you're going by then. <laughs> Sounds like if she's outdoors. Uh, at I the am moment. outdoors. I can tell. I'm taking a break from working on the Jeep. <laughs> uh, is it back together yet? Almost. Working on wheel speed sensors right now. <laughs> and then we have to put the sway bars back. Uh, but we did get the drive shaft all back up and it runs again. Excellent. It lives. Yeah. It lives. Speak to Cher in the second hour uh, of this evening's programme. Bit of a different one tonight because of, uh, uh, I think, what we would call um, circumstances beyond our control. Bit of a different on the grid as well. Tomorrow night with Shebex, Creelsey and the team, uh, they've got a featured guest. Bit, a bit like a long one, an extended interview. Michael Henry is uh, currently... Uh, engineering Porsche Carrera Cup cars for Sonic Motor Racing. But uh, Michael has run the Holden Racing team. He's worked for Tom Walton Shaw over here in Europe. Uh, F1, Arrows, Le Mans 24 Hours, Indy 500 as an engine supplier, and lots more. He's a fascinating character, emphasis very much on character. And that will be a great chat. Also, the team will be speaking to Tickford Chief Tim Edwards about Supercar's second border run thanks to COVID and how it will change their Darwin preparation. That's uh, Shebex, Creelsey and the rest of the team uh, tomorrow night over on RS1. RS1, I know, I know. Uh, and that is nine o'clock. Simcast before that until Tim will have some details on that in a moment. But now, Tim Gray, where would you like to go next? Well, I can tell you those things are details now, because they're mostly going to be talked about season three of iRacing, and the fact that iRacing has officially removed Le Mans from its calendar. Uh, that's tomorrow night at eight on RS1. Uh, but now we're going right. to do some Formula One. And I can say hello again to Nick Damon. Hello there, Tim. You sound like you're under the under the water. So I, I think at one point a minute ago you said Formula One. So I'm going to say, hooray! Hey, hey, hey! RS2, hooray! Uh, and we're getting a bit of a lot of echo coming back from you as well, Tim. So hang on a second. Just give it a beat before you start talking to us. I'm not hearing any echo at all. Uh, Nick, why are we going to be talking about? Uh, the head of analog mems and sensors at ST Microelectronics. Well, because despite being four years younger than me, he, he's got the promotion I was going for, and he's now going to be head of Ferrari. Um, it's, I, I sat there, apparently, 
not speaking Italian, having no knowledge of the company and not having any actual background in engineering, apparently was a slight problem. I think it's just, I think it was an Italian, that's what it was. Uh, 50-year-old uh, Benedetto Vigna, new CEO of Ferrari. Tim's uh, sound quality very, uh, very scratchy to us at the moment. We'll try and get him back in a moment uh, or two. Uh, let's do team by team then, uh, Nick. Uh, and uh, we will start with Renault as they uh, effectively finished. <laughs> right, so hang on. So I have to start with a team that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, oh, yeah. Good point. Uh, right. Who was last then? It's Alpine. Alpine, thank you. Yes. Well, you if, I, if, I, if I could start with Renault, so Jean-Pierre Javier made a very unimpressive debut in the 1978 Silverstone Grand Prix. You know, he didn't run for more than a couple of laps. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's uh, rattle through as we t- try to get... That's just why Tim does that, and I normally uh, don't. So, go on, fire away. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, Baku um, produced, I thought, a particularly interesting race. It wasn't always exciting. They had a, obviously a massive, um, ba- built up to a big finish, of course. Um, yeah, Alpine, kind of the false dawn of Barcelona has disappeared. In the last couple of races, they've been uh, a little bit off. Um, Espen Ocon had a problem and, and retired very on for three laps, not an accident, surprisingly. And, and Alonso, uh, Fernando, was, was pretty anonymous in going backwards, despite a good qualifying during the race, but came alive, given a chance on the two-lap super sprint, as I decided to call it, uh, and made a few places up and got a sixth overall. So um, yeah, not, not so bad overall for points, but I think they'll be a bit disappointed with the performance. Uh, AMG, uh, another Merck garage. Oh, no, sorry, Aston Martin. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, headlines for the right and the wrong reasons. Lance Stroll um, made a mistake in qualifying, which put him to the back of the grid, which made him become, I think, one of only two drivers, the only driver actually, to start on the hard tyre. And he ran very happily for 31 laps on that. And then it went ping, apparently due to debris, threw him into the wall. He was a little bit shaken by it, which is fair enough. I think if I hit the wall 160 miles now, I'd be a little bit shaken. And, you know, unfortunately, he probably would have been okay for points, 10th or 9th. It was a good recovery for the car, which was less off the pace uh, at this particular track. Um, His teammate, uh, Sebastian Vettel, has got the memo that we were all writing him off and decided to unwrite himself off um, with another really good performance. After his great performance in uh, in Monaco, he backed that with another really, really good performance, helped by the the demise of a couple of uh, front runners we'll talk about in a minute and the complete absence of one of the other potential front runners, um, got himself into second and uh, best result for, what, three or four years. And... Yeah, absolutely looks like the team leader. We didn't think he could be, John, but he's, you know, as they say, that's a whole thing, you know. Form is temporary, class is permanent. It looks like the class is coming out again, which is which is great to see. Tim's back with us and can carry on with the next part of Team by Team. I, I never went anywhere, but apparently my microphone uh, was switched off and you were just hearing me through the wall. Uh, <laughs> Red Bull now. Through the ether. Well, I'd, I'd like to, can I, can I just break with traditions? Like, can, can we do Red Bull and, and Mercedes together? Because the whole weekend was about Red Bull and Mercedes. Now, I, I want to ask you a question, that Tim. I'm going to give you a name. Them. Well, anyway, I'm going to give you a name, and you've got to tell me if they're a winner or loser. Okay? Okay. Max Verstappen, winner or loser? Loser. No, he was a winner. Uh, Lewis Hamilton, winner or loser? Loser. He was a winner. Um, Sergio Perez, winner or loser? Probably a loser. No, he was a winner. And uh, Valtteri Bottas, winner or loser? Very much a loser. Very much. Well, we. 
confidence. And the idea for Max Verstappen was when his tyre blew up, and he had fantastic battle 40 kick of the tyre. I loved him for that. He, and then this was get this absolutely Max Verstappen put in a great weekend, didn't qualify on pole due to the red flag, but really, you know, deserved to have just to have done what he looked like he was cruise the end. Great drive. Unfortunately, tyre blowout. Apparently, it was down to uh, debris, but there's a kind of a. Anyway, but when, that, when that happened, he was staring into a 15 or 16 point deficit to Lewis. Um, 10 yards into the restart, he was staring into a, uh, a deficit of uh, perhaps 21 points, Lewis. So to come away still four points ahead, absolutely a winner. Lewis Hamilton, um, prior to lap 47, when uh, Max's tyre blew, was looking at losing 10 points, possibly 11 if Max got the fastest lap, and he was gone 15 points behind. So he's only four points behind. Definite winner. Um, that, uh, you know, Sergio Perez, well, he just won the race and he's a winner and he's, he, he's probably almost certainly got himself another year's uh, contract with uh, with Red Bull because of it. And then you come to Valtteri Bottas, who was beyond anonymous. And frankly, you know, he, he has absolutely, I think, put the file now in his coffin for getting the, getting the drive next year. So this, overall, this basically, yeah, you could argue. Sorry, Nick, with, with everyone else's problems, particularly... Hamilton and uh, Verstappen. This was Bottas's race to lose, and lose he did. Yeah, and he lost it in a spectacular way. He was never in a process to win it. Now, you know, the other thing that I would say is, and I think Mercedes are huge winners out of this race. Um, they didn't lose any points in the overall drivers' championship. Yeah, they lost twenty-five in the constructors. Probably a bit more than they were hoping to do, but they're looking down the barrel of twenty-eight before the tire went went went. It's obvious this car doesn't work in street circuits, so they got that out of the way. Also, during the weekend, the only other street circuit, only other pure street circuit, we don't quite know how um, Jeddah's going to work out. The only pure street circuit, which is Singapore, got cancelled. So they had an advantage there in a, in a good race Red Bull win. So they've kind of dodged a double bullet there. Um, yes, they've looked a bit embarrassing because of the magic button. And yes, it, um, it, it could have been better if, if Lewis hadn't flipped the switch. Uh, but it gave us all an interesting result. So... Yeah, there's a kind of a feeling that Mercedes actually had a way better weekend than everyone apart from Sergio Perez, and much in the in the kind of the, the tradition of uh, people like Johnny Herbert when they won and Michael Schumacher didn't finish. You know, the Flavio, i.e. Christian Horner and Marco, were put on a brave face, but frankly, they couldn't really care less that Sergio won because their boy had some bad luck. So, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, coming away from it, Mercedes had a much better weekend despite the fact they got no points, had their worst result. Uh, of the hybrid area. Uh, Williams <laughs> next. Yeah, that wasn't that. That's disappearing fast, isn't it? Uh, Williams has got a real problem. They haven't got um, any race pace. Uh, George did what he always does. Got into Q two. Uh, Nicholas Latifi trundled around behind him. Uh, they were together for most of the race, and George finished behind uh, Latifi because he had to retire with a gearbox problem with two laps to go, and Latifi was behind everybody, uh, including um, both the Haas. And Hass is what we come on to next. Well, it's interesting because Nikita Mazapan is obviously um, a big fan of Schumacher. Not Mick Schumacher, but Michael Schumacher. Because uh, on the last corner, he put up a patent uh, Daddy Schumacher move and tried to run, run Mick Schumacher into, into the wall with a jink at the right. Um, completely pointless uh, because he was defending 13th and 14th place. Uh, he'd run out of uh, battery power and was going to get overtaken. So another black mark on for Mazapan, who, who appears to find new ways of making people dislike him uh, at every single moment. But... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's 
and Haas got 13th. It was the best result of the weekend. Um, yeah, but, yeah, nothing, nothing particularly special. Uh, Alfa Romeo, another point. Yeah, yeah, but only one point. And when you've lost three of the top four um, for various reasons, that's when you should be picking up the pieces, especially in a chaotic race with a with a super restart. Uh, Giovinazzi tried a an, sorry, an aggressive strategy by going in very early for the tyres, and it didn't really kind of work work out. And by the time the sprint race happened, they weren't in position. Raikkonen managed to get a point. You know, it was probably the least return they could get. But they are cementing themselves in a solid eighth place. McLaren. Yeah. Danny Rick apparently has massively improved this week. I didn't see it. Um, and he, uh, Lando Norris uh, got fifth again, flattered by the lack of the two guys who, who broke down or, or fell off the track in front of him. Um, they just seem a little bit off the pace, uh, certainly of, of Ferrari and, and even to Alpha Tauri this week. Um, I think Lando Norris is now the only person scored in every single race. Maximise what you can get, which is fine. And I think they'll be much happier once we get back to the, to the more normal circuits of uh, France and Austria the next couple of weeks. This is Lando's worst finish of the season as well. Yeah, fifth. Yeah, I mean, but he's, he, yeah, he's having a great year, and still, Danny can't can't match him for some reason. I don't know what it is. In fact, this McLaren is really hard to drive. I'm thinking, really? Is it? I don't know what this, this terrible weirdness it has. Uh, Ferrari next. Uh, Ferrari got the pole, second pole. Everything looked great. Yeah, it's all, they're they're going to be out there and winning, but they just didn't have the um, the setup was designed for qualifying, where if you run a bit, a little bit little bit less wing you can get a nice lap time but it just brutes the tires off a few laps Charles had to let go and and slowly fall back the field and he came towards fourth but that's actually a net six you take the guys who didn't get past him uh Carlos Sainz should have been right behind him, but made a mistake on his out lap on the hard tires went down the uh, skate road managed to reverse but by that time he'd lost about 117 uh positions Alpha Tauri I think Alpha Tauri was surprised as the rest of us about how well they did. Um, a great podium for Pierre Gasly. Yuki Tsunoda had a much better weekend, apart from in P3 where he caused a red flag that stopped it. We were pushing ridiculously hard, but, you know, he had made a top 10. Qualifying looked good. Um, again, a good result for Alpha Tauri, a good result for the Hondas, really. You know, they would have been four in the top eight if it hadn't been for the tyre going up. So, yeah, we've, we finished our little run of street circuits. We've got some normal circuits to come. Will Mercedes catch up? Because currently they do not have the fastest car by any means. But, you know, it might just be because it's circuit dependent. But it is actually. <laughs> and that's our team by team review of the Azerbaijan Grand Prix at the weekend. Uh, quick other bit of Formula One job news. And Simon Roberts is leaving Williams. Yeah, um, he's he was also the team principal. That job has been taken up by Jos Capito. It was kind of a situation Ooh. where they had too many chiefs and not enough broth. So nothing really, I think, against uh, Simon. I think he just he was an extra head they didn't need. They wanted a slightly uh, sharper and shorter um, reporting structure. And obviously, after they paid him off, uh, the payoff done, it will, it will save them a, a big salary as well. So, uh, yeah, no, none of there's any real real story about that it's just a very obvious thing now Capito's got his feet under the ground feet under the table and thinks he knows how to reorganise him better and what are we six months away from uh, this is the first uh, Jeddah Saudi Arabian Grand Prix isn't it and have they celebrated six months to go um, they've sent us a uh, rendering of their pit lane saying it's the most spectacular ever yes is it yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's hard to, to tell from two dimensions. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to tell from the I'm picture, sure isn't it? Well, you know, it's probably draped in gold and, you know, has its own oil well at each corner. 
Okay, and thanks very much. basically Jeddah by night, isn't it? <laughs> well, I've never been there, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> thanks, Nick. Uh, Nick Dearman will be back in the second hour when we'll be doing a bit of bikes news. Dave Alcock uh, has tweeted at Speculatement. It's literally sent a chill down my spine when Lawrence mentioned the music on those rally and race reports. I'm sure that that's what introduced me to the music of Van Gelis and Jean-Michel Jarre. Uh, I didn't know who they were in terms of the artists then, but that's where I uh, heard them first. Matthew Hyman, if I'm right, BHP might have been one of the first, if not the first, independent production companies to do the sport for BBC Grandstand. Loved watching the programmes down through the years. Barry Hinchcliffe uh, created a fabulous archive and some great memories. Uh, thanks to Lawrence Foster for that. Halfway through the show tonight on RS2. Midweek Motorsport. Half time. And while we swap ends, here's what's coming up. So, still to come on tonight's programme. Nick Damon will be back uh, with some bike news. Going to try and get Declan Brennan in uh, on that uh, as well. Shea Adam has some indie car news. We have your submissions, uh, your please, at uh, Specutainment this evening, although if we're on RS2, it's still on Specutainment. Uh, and with a bit of luck and a fair wind, we're going to try and check in on a world record attempt. But next, it's the big interview on Midway Water Sports, just for once, on RS2. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com. Just after nine o'clock then on Midweek Motorsport. Good to have your company. Series, can you believe this? Series 16, episode 23 already. 23? <laughs> Should have been at Le Mans, of course. But we're not. We're doing the show and we will have them on later on in the year. Uh, cast your mind back a month or so, Sam Smith uh, was our guest doing a bit of a reset for us on uh, Formula E uh, and he's back. That was just before Monaco and the E-Prix there for the first time on the, the full circuit. Sam, welcome back to the show and our big interview tonight. Uh, un- I, I, sh- I would say an unmitigated success, the E-Prix, around the full circuit at Monaco. Yeah, good to be back, John. Um, it was. I mean, it was a terrific event. So much overtaking, so much interest. It looked fabulous. Um, the cars looked it, brilliant. They did, didn't they? Yeah, they, the parameters of the track suited the car. There is a novelty aspect, of course, when, when they start, but it, it sort of grew into it. The cars grew into the track. And with the uh, the attack zones that they used, it just played out a perfect game of strategy and interest with arguably three of the top five drivers in the championship in Antonio Felix da Costa, Robin Freins and Mitch Evans. And, and they diced it out and duked it out to the end. And it was a great spectacle. And, and Formula E, you know, boy, didn't it need it after Valencia. So yeah. it delivered. And there are talks there are talks on going to try and get a race there next year, which is outside of the, yeah, the every two years agreement. But, you know, if, if Formula E can somehow get a race annually on there. I think it'll help the championship no end. 
is it in some ways, and this leads on to why we've actually got you on Midweek Motorsport this week, is it in some way one of those defining moments of the championship, as much as becoming a world championship, as much as just going to the no pit stop format, Monaco, E-Prix, on the full circuit, and it being such a spectacle that, quite frankly, showed up the Formula One event. No surprises there. Formula One has outgrown Monaco probably from about the third year it was ever there. But is this one of those defining moments? It could be. Um, I I think sportingly, yeah, I think people with, you know, coming to the championship with fresh eyes will have seen a great contest and something that went down to literally the last few corners. So, you know, there's, you know, what, what isn't there to like about that As, as a spectacle? It worked. I think after Valencia, like I mentioned, it did need it, but yeah, possibly. I think, I think once people see the gen three cars at the end of 2022, I, I see that as more of a, a big moment for Formula mm-hmm. E because that's when there'll be a, a big power hike. The cars will be lighter. And that's when people will see that these things are, are super spectacular on, on acceleration and, um, and regening and, and all the sustainability messages that go with Formula E. And the reason I said that that was uh, pertinent is because Formula E racing for the future by the very man we're talking to, Sam Smith, uh, was released last month in the UK anyway. Described as a behind-the-scenes insight into the world's premier all-electric racing series. Um, It's glossy. It's tech. It's a little bit of the background of it. Um, Tell me why now, Sam, this was the right time. You'd have been planning this for a wee while, but basically after six going into season seven of Formula E, why was it the right time to to bring this history of Formula E uh, to to people's uh, to people's consciousness? Well, the, the first thing I guess, John, is that nothing of its kind exists. You know that that this is the first of its kind, and. In terms of doing a, 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 a deep dig into Formula E, why it started, how it started, how it almost died, mm. and then how it flourished to what it was, uh, to what it is now. Interestingly, I actually started this at the end of 2019, which I think now is kind of, in some in some regards, is the kind of peak of Formula E. And, and obviously that's defined by the pandemic, as, as all series and all sort of mm. sports competitions have been to some extent. But the real fascination for Formula E for me it started pre-championship. So, um, you know, some of your listeners may know that I used to work for Lola, um, Lola Cars, until 2012. And one of the last projects that I, I sort of helped work on with that was the, the Drace and All Electric car. Um, and well, I just found that World record-holding car. I was exactly, there when exactly. it happened, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, they, did the, they did the quickest speed, didn't they, up at Elvington in Yorkshire. Yeah. So... It's, and I just got really interested in the tech then, and this is a decade ago, so this is 2011 into 12, and found it just really fresh and interesting. You know, I, you know me, I'm, I love Lola T-70s and Porsche 917s as much as, as, much as the next uh, person, John, but I, just thinking about where the future of motorsport was going and the way the world was going, and, you know, this isn't hindsight stuff. I was speaking to some engineers um all that time ago and they definitively said that this is the future of motorsport to a a, a good extent you know to not not wholesale but there will be more electric racing cars in the future um i'm not sure if they thought it would be so quick but obviously the advent of formula e 
which was started by Jean Todd and, and Alejandro Agag, it just kick-started something which evidenced that racing, electric EV racing cars could be interesting, could be attractive, and could yeah. um, stimulate uh, manufacturers to come into a championship. And, and it started around about that time that you're talking about, 2011. Uh, Jean Todd, very much the driving force, head of the FIA, and uh, an interesting uh, triumvirate that he was talking to, Alejandro Agag, and we know that he's now the man at the top, former politician, uh, of course, um, Antonio Tajani, and an Italian actor uh, uh, by the name of Tio, Tio Corley. And apparently they were having a, an Italian male uh, in 2011, in in March. Uh, and from there, with Jean Todd's support, uh, it was driven forward with Alejandro deciding that, yeah, I'd, I'll take on the task of that. I know how to negotiate contract and sponsorship. Uh, and And then it took a couple of years to get going i mean was as far as you know that meeting was that was that planned for that to happen to talk about that was it a lucky accident how how did that come about well every story needs a romantic twist doesn't it or a, or a sort of uh there's a, a lot of continental say a mythical twist uh, to it but yeah i mean this this actually did happen there, there was a meeting in paris at an italian restaurant in paris called la stressa and i I actually tracked it down about three years ago and got a picture of this uh, napkin, which people thought was, a, like I said, a kind of uh, a myth. But it does exist. And at that meeting, they outlined sketchy plans for a all-electric single-seater championship on a napkin. Uh, and it was signed by uh, Alejandro Agag. And, and amusingly, at the bottom, he puts a smiley face and says, I'm going to be the promoter on it. And, and this was then placed in the restaurant uh, sometime later. So I think Agag kept the kept the napkin and then took it back to the restaurant when the championship was established. But it was from that time. Wow. Um, and so it's a kind of little relic to the start of something pretty big. But of course, before that, John Todd was very uh, active in trying to get an all-electric championship of some description. Agag was kind of doing his GP2 team stroke um, dabbled in football with Queen's Park Rangers. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't seen a, a documentary called The Four-Year Plan, um, uh, which chronicles he and Briatore and Eccleston's adventure with QPR, then please seek it out. It's an extraordinary piece of uh, film. You've got to try and watch that. Anyway, a gag was on to the next challenge, and he became the promoter. He tendered for the, um, the promotion of the championship. And it was formed very quickly between that meeting in 2011 um and then formulary formulary uh, operations and formulary holdings became the um the rights holders and they became the promoters and organizers of the championship and it all happened very quickly but i think the reason why it happened quickly was that there was a real necessity and a real momentum mm. in the automotive industry that and a realization that a lot of the hardware, a lot of the forecasts that the manufacturers and the OEMs had was going to be EV. It, it, it exploded into the world psyche with the first race at Beijing um, in September 2014, um, the first race weekend. And I remember it well because um, Sam Collins and I did a, a, a live call for radio on it. Um, and the last 
corner of the race, of course, uh, Nick Heidfeld and Nicola Prost went out, car upside down, highlights made, every news bulletin around the world. And, and that season, actually, was a bit of a thriller. Uh, London, final round, uh, Buemi, Piquet, uh, and Degrassi all had a theoretical chance of winning and the ch- championship is decided by one point. Couldn't, in many ways, Sam, have been a better start. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, yeah, on the on the surface, it, it looked great. Um, however, as many of these things in the industry and in business generally are, underneath the um, the waterline, things were a little bit sketchier, shall we say. The, the book details some of this, and I won't give too many spoilers no, away, it did. but... The, um, the the story of how it was created, that sort of fraught period of getting the first race on in Beijing, and then, as you mentioned, John, the Heidfeld-Prost incident really uh, jettisoned it into, into existing because you know what it's like. Trying to get any motor racing championship off the ground is tough. It took A1GP the best part of two years to yeah. to make any real impact, and that was with you know a, fair, a fairly decent um, budget and investment. It ultimately died within five years. The same is the case of a myriad of other championships, you know, including Super League and and, and so many others, even Renault 3.5, something that a manufacturer has input in. So what what happened in that first season is that the initial investment that was given was exhausted extremely quickly. You can imagine logistics. You can imagine putting the races on in city centres. An enormous amount of cash is needed. By the third race the championship was effectively dead. It was existing on credit cards on Alejandro. This is by his own words, by the way, uh, Alejandro Agag's own uh, means of supporting the championship, of getting freight out to the races. It was within hours of dying. Um, Alejandro himself was um, dismissed for a time from the head of the championship. The full story of this is in the book and hasn't really been told before. Right. So that is a, is a really key part of the book. It's and extraordinary, that, isn't it? I mean, if you yeah, wrote it as I mean, a script, I won't give anything away either. But I was I was wrapped with that part of the book. Um, you uh, honestly, th- th- there are things in it which you just think this can't be true, but but they are, <laughs> and they've been verified by Alejandro and others. But you know, when he was putting the deal together with Liberty uh, to effectively save the championship and invest in the championship and give it a solid foundation, I mean that was the that was the crucial axis. Yes. It was it was gonna it was either gonna die the next day or it was going to be saved and flourish. But it all happened in Miami in March of 2015. It staggered through the previous two races in Buenos Aires and in Uruguay. And while uh, while Agag was on his way to that race at Miami, um, he was stopped by... He was, a, he was in a speedboat. So think, think Miami Vice... <laughs> I love this. This is brilliant. Uh, he was in a he was in a speedboat going to the track and got a call saying that uh, there was issues with the um, with the build of the track because don't forget that you know it only exists for a day effectively in yep. Formula Eight. They they hadn't got some of the uh, some of the barriers and there were other logistical issues and he was told this on the way to the track. He then got stopped by some uh, river cops and um, it just snowballed from there. All, all with the ultimate, um, the ultimate uh, crucial 
part of the story being that he was on the way to do the deal and seal the deal with Liberty. And he was he was he was um, he was speaking to the Miami uh, constabulary via a speedboat and then also was told that the race probably wasn't going to happen because the, the, oh the circuit God. couldn't be finished. So it, it was facing he was facing certain ruin in the space of a couple of hours. But then, you know, obviously it had a, a happy ending of sorts. In terms of, you know, you, you can only think can you imagine what what we would have made of that had there been a documentary crew following them around like happens in so many other championships nowadays um to the jeopardy there would not have had to have been manufactured with big tumpty tumpty tum music and a voiceover going will it happen will it not happen find out when we come back on formula e the difficult birth or whatever it it would have been called i mean you could have had a danny sullivan cameo in miami as well can we like he did in miami vice That's like a cherry on the cake. You, you make a good point, though, about Formula E racing for the future. The the, the book that chronicles the start and the, the first uh, seasons, first few seasons um, of Formula E. Um, it is official because Alejandro Agag and uh, Jean Todt have have put their names to it as well with forwards. And clearly, as someone who's been to pretty much all of the races, Sam. Uh, you know the inner workings, and you've been able to talk to some quite influential people from the top down. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm quite fortunate in knowing quite a quite a lot of people involved in the championship from the start through other uh, strands of, of racing. But there's 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 a, the one thing that runs through Formula E, and you know, first of all, I I realise that a lot of it's a divisive part of the sport still. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. In 2014, when I went to my first race, it was a it was a joke. You know, people people just didn't give it any time whatsoever. It, you know, there was no noise. It wasn't particularly quick. They played uh, music over the speakers during the races well, they, at the first they ones, did, didn't and, they? Yep. Yeah, and I sat in the grandstand in uh, it was such a surreal day. Uh, I ended up in um, Uruguay. Uh, Punta del Este, which is by the Atlantic Ocean, a, a, an amazing uh, location for a race. And I went out for the first free practice session. Couldn't believe how slow the cars were. Couldn't believe that some experienced drivers were out breaking themselves at ridiculous speeds into a corner because the regeneration and the braking systems, even in the Gen 1 cars, were, were tricky for the drivers. But it was all to the soundtrack of this ludicrous sort of Euro trash beat, uh, dance music beat, which I just found so distracting yeah. and so ridiculous that I actually told a gag uh, that weekend that, you know, that, I, had to go. that that is just ridiculous. And everybody in the, in the grandstands was distracted by this ridiculous music, which had been put in place to try and stimulate one of the senses, which was lost by Correct. obviously being an EV um, powertrain. But it, it, it honestly doesn't matter. Once you get used to the chirp and the and the lack of noise, honestly, and this is from somebody who's been to 17 Le Mans over the year and they've got, you know, probably permanent damage to my both of my ears, it actually becomes a refreshing change. Yeah. You know, it well, is... you can hear the Michelin tyre squealing, you know, when people yeah. are, are pushing hard. You can hear when they even just glance the wall, even if you weren't looking, you know what's going. It's a different, and this is what you and I have talked about for, for so many years on this. What, you know, whether you love it or hate it, it's different. It was, it's always going to stand or fall for my money 
by not whether it's signalling virtue or not, not whether it's got OEM support or not, but by the quality of the racing and the racing quality from from that very first race. Did it have drama? Oh yes, it had drama in that first season. Did did we know who was going to win the championship? No, we didn't. And that you know that's live sport. You don't you know you want you want to have that jeopardy. And yeah. I think I think the book captures the behind-the-scenes jeopardy as well. What's interesting to me as well, Sam, and I'd like to know what your thinking on this is, there's a great story just there, what we've talked about, but you've broadened Formula E Racing for the Future out to be a technical examination of of the championship as well, with some quite detailed, almost sort of Haynes manual um, technical details in into the cars that have raced. Why? Well, there's a simple answer to that. (laughs) Initially, we were working with Haynes, but for various reasons, that that didn't happen. And and this has been published by Evro, who have been been fantastic. But yeah, you are right. There there is that Haynesy feeling to it. And I, you know, I don't think it's remiss of me to say that initially this was this was going to be a Haynes book. But like like I said, they had lots of reasons it, it hasn't been. But to answer your question, yeah, there is a lot of technical um, sort of forensic type detail mm. in here because the, the 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 premise, if you like, of the book is I wanted a combination of introducing something to, to people new to this type of uh, racing because it is a new entity itself, right? So it is a new strand of racing, which I think does cater both to seasoned enthusiasts but also to people new to the sport so wanted to bring in a bit of that to it but i also wanted to make sure there was a good sort of human narrative through it via the drivers via the engineers via the the administrators and the the people who you know gave birth to the championship if you like so it, it is a you know it isn't one thing it's it's several things and i think you can pick that up through the book you know it starts off with a how and why it happened then the, the near death then the um the, the flourishing of the championship and then it goes into more technical sporting and and, and that angle but you know even at the end we have a, a section which is uh people like julian jacoby sam bird um uh scott elkins their stories about yeah this this new kind of epoch of racing within the structure of what we know and love motorsport that would be, to be. a hyphen poc surely <laughs> <laughs> very good very droll um but i just I, I i'll wanted give you it that one be... for the next book yeah i'll have that for free <laughs> um i i just i just found everything about it from the start even though the first race that i went to was pretty rudimentary and mm. you know we're in we're in uruguay uh this thing's happening it's not quick it's got this daft dance music <laughs> but when you when i went up and, and i tell you what i tell you what happened there I walked up the pit lane for the first time, saw a few familiar faces, obviously a lot of them at Marco, and I got a bit closer, and it was. And I said to him, I said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, you know, just taking a look. It's quite mm. interesting, you know. And I said, but we're in we're in Uruguay. <laughs> it's not like, you know, he's just popped over to, to the Red Bull ring or Hockenheim or something. He's, he's travelled a day, a 24-hour door-to-door travel. You wouldn't do that if you weren't interested. Yeah, ultimately, Red Bull haven't had any part and parcel of Formula E, but he was interested enough to go there, yeah. Yeah. So that told you that actually something's happening here, you know, and at that race there was a BMW representative, at the next race 
there was uh, James Barkley from Jaguar was there incognito having a look. And then you heard that Audi were, you know, getting closer with apps. And then you heard that in season two, there were some Porsche and Mercedes people there. And then you thought, hang on, there's something going on here. And look, whether it is just, um, whether it is a pure marketing thing, mm-hmm. you know, there is a case for that. Yes. You know, this is, this is around the time of, Dieselgate. It's when things were shifting in the automotive industry and that sector. But ultimately, you know, if you get multiple manufacturers attracted to something, and the the framework and the foundation is solid, which it was after Liberty invested, then you know you, you're talking about going stratospheric, and that's what happened in in 2017. As far as how it stands now, you and I have had many conversations about this, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you go in a sec, but it, I, I think we've got to say for this. So Formula E, Racing for the Future, is the book. It's by Evro Publishing. We'll do as we normally do, and we'll put the link uh, on with the archive of this, and it'll be on the collective and everything. Um, a, a sort of, amazingly, if it was a novel... If there's parts of it that read like pure fiction and, uh, as we said, a dramatic piece of, of writing, it's all true, it's all official, um, and then there's all the technical detail that you never knew about what was going on in the background, mixed with the personal stories and the human interest of the individuals that have been involved down through the years for Formula E. If you were to put your neck on the line now, Sam... Um, We've talked about this before, so I think I know you, you, what you're going to say. Obviously, everything um, hasn't been on hold during pandemic. Things have had to go forward. New car coming. Will that be a, as big a seismic shift in Formula E as potentially when it got world championship status, as when we went from pit stops to no pit stops? And is that the springboard then for even greater acceptance by the motorsports enthusiast who were somewhat shut out, in fairness, because they were told this wasn't for them at the beginning. And I always thought that was a very strange thing for, for Formula E to do. But but is that the next big stepping stone, the new car? I think so. Yeah, I really do. I think, you know, these ultimately the power is going to... Um, the power is going to be escalated so much. The weight is going to come down. They're going to be quicker. I think the key aspect is going to be where are these things going to race? Can they still race on close, confined city street tracks? Right. And actually, the bigger picture, John, I think, is what is going to be the sporting structure of Formula going forward? Is right. it going to be? Is it going to keep that city centre racing uh, DNA that, that it's had since its inception? I don't think it can. I think it's got to expand into... Right what I would call um, hybrid tracks, so maybe using um, stadiums or in and around perimeter roads stadiums, which they're going to do at Excel um, in July. Indoor, outdoor, yeah. Exactly, yeah, and and at Seoul, around the Olympic Stadium. That's not to say there won't be city centre racetracks. I'm sure there will, but when Gen 3 comes, you know, there's nothing more terrifying than seeing... um, really quick cars on street tracks with with debris fences and mm. um you know it, it, there is an inherent safety risk when speeds go up and they are um, still if, heavy cars aren't they in single yes, seater terms they are because of the battery you know yeah. and this is the other point is that technologically 
there is so much that can be that that is fast paced in terms of the technology of batteries, which is you know happening daily, weekly, daily rather than by the year. So whereas race engines in the past and powertrains now, you have an incremental development within the structure of Formula E. You've got aspects of the motor, the inverters, but predominantly the battery. Uh, technology which is advancing and changing all the time and that's not even mentioning fast charging which is going to be right. part of gen 3 racing so the key so, f- so fuel pit stops effectively it, to use traditional yeah. to and the problem with all that though sam and we're going off on a tangent so we'll, i'm going to let you go in a minute i promise but but the problem with all that is to keep costs manageable you've got to homologate a powertrain an inverter um a battery pack that gives people time gives the teams time to amortize that over a, a period of years and you can't say halfway through season two of the the regulations that's meant the last three four five years whatever it is oh great we've got this new um water paper and beeswax battery and it's it weighs two ounces and it can keep us going for two hours we're all going to throw that in now so throw your other one you just can't do that you've got to set stuff and say right we understand we're paying catch up a little bit first gen car by the time that went out, the technology was pretty old. It was tried and tested technology when it first came in. By the time it went out, it had been superseded. Second gen car, right, we've moved along a bit. Third gen car, we've moved along a bit. But, but like every form of motor racing, you can't just make changes for changes' sake because it's too expensive. Yeah, this is true. This is true. And actually, just using a case study from Gen 1 to Gen 2, I remember speaking to Jens Marquardt, uh, ex-boss um, of... BMW Motorsport, and the reason they didn't come in initially, and many others, although they didn't say it publicly, was because they didn't want to be associated with a championship that had two cars, and was effectively saying, whether absolutely true or not, that you know they couldn't get one car to the finish of a race or a traditional race length. Range anxiety, yeah, all all those kind of things. So you know, manufacturers do have, you know, at the end of the day, manufacturers. It, they have to look after themselves and what's relevant to their uh, to their consumers in the future. So you, you, the battery technology is of primary interest to them. Yes. And I know that companies such as Porsche and, and Mercedes at the technical working group meetings, they, they often push on what is the roadmap saying for Gen 4? What's going on for the batteries? For Gen How 4? Can we, how can, yeah, how can we wow. open things up? Is Gen 3 set? Gen 3 is going to be a spec battery, which is going to be provided by Williams Advanced Engineering. But when is the battery technology going to open up? When is it going to become less spec? I'm not saying that it will be free, because that's when you get what you described there, John, where you get a, a huge arms race and it implodes and it becomes another uh, ITC or whatever. Um, so I think that's crucial. Now, in terms of, I'll be very quick here, but it's it, there is there are numerous boards and numerous working groups um but ultimately there is a person called professor burkhard gershel who sits on the uh, the new energies commission of the fia and is part in, he heads the manufacturers commission in the fia as well he is i call him god right because he is the guy who makes the rules he makes the roadmap and he ultimately with his experience with bmw with mercedes within the industry he sets a framework for the next rules iterations of Formula E and puts all those inputs, which I've mentioned, from manufacturers, what they want, what the fans want, 
what's good for yeah. the sport, what's good for the future of the championship, and all that is part of it. And yeah, there is a small chapter looking at that, and I think yeah. the future is bright, but it, it it needs managing. And and also, John, don't forget, Formula E is not the only show in town now. No, uh, Electric GT is coming, Rallycross, TCR. So yeah, even more important for Formula E to to get its uh, own house in order. Yeah, Formula E racing for the future by Sam Smith, a behind the scenes insight into world, the world's premier all electric racing series you can see why i consumed the book when when we or you can hear uh, when we talked to sam why sam was the perfect person to pen this uh, this tome here on uh, on on the desk alongside me there'll be more to come from sam on midweek motorsport throughout the season and well beyond on this uh, and others uh, it's from evro publishing and we'll have all those details sam i've really enjoyed that it, it is by no means dry and technical it's stories it's people it's drama it's jeopardy and there's plenty of technical as well that will have people uh, raising their eyebrows thanks for joining us mate on uh, on midweek motorsport we'll talk you through the season if that's okay pleasure john look forward to it thank you tim gray up in london uh, who on where or when or what in the motorsport world are we going to next on midweek motorsport well, he said when, and I'm going to say 4.30 this morning when I was tucked up nicely in bed. But some mad people uh, happened to be at Thruxton ready to start a world record attempt. And uh, we're now 17 hours and three minutes after that. Uh, so let's see how they're getting on. Well, actually, it's a bit less than that because it didn't quite get underway. But nice to have this straight after our Formula A with Sniffer uh, there. Jim Cameron, uh, Mission Motorsport, you mad, mad fool, hyper-miling. And what, you're about 12 hours in at the moment? Yeah, no, we, we absolutely are. I mean, Tim was exactly right. We were up properly early this morning. You know, this is British summertime. Uh, the sun comes up at 4.48 at Thruxton in the morning. Only this morning, of course, it didn't. Uh, this morning, we didn't see anything resembling sunshine until after nine o'clock. Uh, and that was painful for us um, uh, because what we're doing is trying to get two little Renault Zoe's electric cars as far as possible on a single charge. And the reason why we're trying so hard to do it is that um, hypermiling is an interesting thing, but it, 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 it's, uh, there's not very many records seem to be held by the UK. And that Renault Zoe record of 351 miles is 100 miles further than those things are supposed to be able to go. We're set in 2018 and something possessed us that it was a bloody good idea that we could have a crack at it. And so here we are. And I'm currently standing in the middle, actually on the start finish line of, uh, of Thruxton Circuit. Um, uh, at sunset, and we've been running now for 12 hours. And? Those little cars set off in motion. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and? Still come going on, now. come on, don't keep me in suspense, though, Jim. How close are you to this record? Well, okay, so um, uh, you expect uh, you expect them to be able to do 254 miles. So that's what the manufacturer tells you. That's the WLTP range, which is a balanced aggregate you know driving some pretty optimal conditions and it's generally the people are complaining about that they can't quite get near it so what we're setting out to do is to try and go all right let's see if you absolutely take as much of the uh variables out of the situation and just bring it down to driver skill how far can you make these things go so 254 miles and we set off 
12 hours ago, I tell you, Damon Hill's lap record is under serious threat. I mean, back in 1993, he did that 147 mile an hour lap. That's nothing compared to 21.2 mile hour average that we are setting at the moment. Six minutes it takes the cars to come round every time. But what it's doing is it's absolutely eking those bars to degree. But what a concentration for the drivers. And of course, it's a years uh, when we brought a proper hypermiler on board who's a lovely bloke uh, he did a bit of training with the team and he very quickly found out that he wasn't actually the best at the actual hypermiling thing and in training the person who was best at it was Tilly Lambert Lee who is the wife of a serving Royal Engineer bomb disposal soldier and uh, uh, and as I speak, a little Zoe's just bimbled past my feet and continues off into the darkness behind us. Um, I think these things are going to run all night. Really? Really? So, so I, I know that the, the Frenchman who set... I, I know that the Frenchman that set this record, Jim, um, has, has wished you well on Twitter, which is lovely. Um, and you don't just want to slightly break this record. If you can get through into the morning, somewhere near a 24-hour run, what do you think the mileage is going to be then? Because I know you'll have worked it out. Yeah, no. I mean, there are Excel spreadsheets like you wouldn't believe uh, going on in the background as we're working out exactly how we can optimise the range uh, and also um, get rid of the variances in between the drivers. So we've, we've got two cars and we've absolutely taken all of those things which you could do to optimise out of it. This needs to be a car exactly as it would be as if you drive out yeah. to the showroom. So that's exactly what they are. These aren't Renault Press Fleet cars. They haven't had anything special done to them. They were supplied by Hindi, who very kindly, you know, have given us two identical back. We oh. took them up to Pro Drive, you know, Mitchell Diva on the flat ramps, where I can remember seeing proper sports cars being put through there in the past to make sure that the alignment is bang on the manufacturer's settings and the time the pressures it's something like 38 in the front and 33 in the back because anyone can start taping bits and pieces up folding in the wing mirrors throwing out the seats and all of the rest of it and it rather becomes an a an exercise in who can ruin their zoe the most or do something that's 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 the least relevant hey, i'm not arguing that any of this is relevant but let's isolate everything so it's down to driver skill preparation and perseverance in order to set that bar as far as it can and you're teasing me into it, but yeah, I don't know. 351 is is a is wow. a huge number for a little car. I mean, you know, Teslas don't go that far. The <laughs> longest range of anything available in the UK, sort of low 400s. Well, mm. crikey, wouldn't it be cool if we could get a little Zoe to do that sort of distance on one charge? Remember, this is on one charge and co- and, and pretty much constant running. Listen, we're starting to lose you on the connection there, Jim. But I I, I, I want to talk about the fact you've got two cars there. One is absolutely standard Renault spec from Hendy, if you said. The other one is absolutely standard Renault spec from Hendy, except for the tyres. Nah. nah, no, 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 absolutely. So these are these are two standard cars that we're running at the standard pressures. So tomorrow we're just going to find out exactly how far those things can go, and I'm going to hold my uh, i'm going to hold my uh, my council until then oh okay it's pretty cool to see how far those things right. go but we might be trying a bit of technology just to see i wonder whether we can get a difference in between the two of them All but right. it's a 
fascinating exercise that is also irredeemably nerdy and I need to have some sort of a cold shower before I go home. All right, Otherwise, listen, Mrs. Cameron will, will not speak to me. I, I'm going to let you get away. As I say, the, the connection's getting a wee bit scratchy. Um, I know you've just announced uh, Race of Remembrance. Will you come on in the next couple of weeks and tell us how we're doing with that and what extra excitement we can expect this year? Absolutely. I'll be, be totally delighted to. ROR, yeah, we're on, we're going. It's going to be amazing. But for the first year as well, I think we learned loads from last year under COVID. So we've got the opportunity to help more people experience Race of Remembrance in more ways and to celebrate the sport that we love on a weekend that's, that's truly special. Oh, I, I can't wait, mate. Listen, keep us in touch. We'll keep it. We're watching the socials. We'll be tweeting it out. Uh, I, I expect to get up in the morning and see that you lads are all going. Lads and lasses are all going mad. Jim Cameron joining us live from Thruxton. Thanks, my friend. Cheers, mate. Hypermiling is what they were doing there. Hypermiling. Can you believe it? Uh, a new type of motorsport midweek motorsport it is uh, series 16 episode 23 after us tonight you know this weekend we've got a couple of things we've got IMSA on Friday and Saturday here on RS2 uh, and we've got WEC returning eight hours of Portimao are on Saturday and Sunday and following us tonight Haggerty inside track I was going to pull some bits and pieces out of the show that we did the video show we did I think it's just best to play the whole thing. Jim Glickenhouse talking a lot uh, uh, about um, the uh, about the weekend, and I think it's worth staying on. We might run over a little bit tonight because I want to get Johnny Palmer to talk about ELMS and, and WEC. But let's move to bikes now uh, and to Nick Damon. Uh, who rejoins us. Hello, Nick. Hello. Hello, Tim, John, Johnny, the world, and Shay. And everybody. And and everyone knows me. Yeah, and, and everybody who knows you. Um, Catalonia at the weekend. Yes. Uh, the the first big thing is what happened to Susie, uh, what happens to Susie's leg? Um, how did she break? Broken a fibula, and she was still working wow. at the weekend. Well, obviously, something happened on Friday night, but we, yeah, I don't know, they're in London. It, You're apparently allowed to it, go out, and something happened. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. Okay, we'll talk about the bikes, and we've got Declan Brennan with us as well. Good evening, Dex. Good evening, everybody. Hello, mate. Um, we've, we're going to start um, with the big question. Uh, it is the big zip question. Uh, if you <laughs> did not know... Uh, at the weekend, Fabio Quattararo, champion, world championship leader, uh, going into this weekend, was uh, was having a decent race, challenging towards the front of the field. He qualified brilliantly on the new version of the circuit with the new turn 10. And of course, they don't do the silly chicane at the end. They go straight on at turn 13 and then do a big sweep back to the final corner. And three laps to go. Uh, apparently it started happening before this, but three laps to go. The zip on his Alpine Stars race suit starts race leather starts to come down to the point where it's getting uncomfortable for him. So he pulled it down to pull his chest protector out and then he couldn't get it pulled up again. Wow. And he, he did the last three laps without his leathers fastened. And that, Declan, is absolutely against all of the regulations. Well, first of all, if, if his... If his uh 
chess protector is going to start riding up with where he shouldn't be buying them from grace brothers but that's a uh, they all do that this year sir they're being worn that way <laughs> no you missed my gag clearly sorry even even you missed the, uh, uh, are you being served gag there but never mind uh so i'm free. john my problem with this is and this is a very very broad problem is that this is entirely detracting from what we should be talking about uh, and of course we're going to talk about it, but what we should be talking about was an imperious performance by by Miguel Oliveira, imperious. Mm. And uh, and we're not. We're talking about uh, like the 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 work of a of a a, a vainglorious Egypt, because this is on him. What happened? Nobody else. Mm. Uh, he 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 decides to wear. His chest protector, they all do, but the fact that they wear chest protectors that aren't secured is absolutely I, I ridiculous. That's all. That's absolutely. Yeah. They are just held in effectively by your leathers being yeah. fastened. I'm not a big fan of chest protectors. Even when I was wearing sports bikes, uh, I never wore them. I had a back protector built in. I didn't wear a secondary back protector. I prefer stuff that's in my leathers because I know it can't move. That's the reason I, I, yeah. I, I liked that stuff. The worst thing about this though, Nick, for me, is he, he'd been penalised for skipping turns one and two. He got three seconds, which dropped him off the, the podium. Quite a raro this is. Really, there's absolutely no doubt that race control should have black flagged him and brought him in because it's absolutely against the technical regulations. It's dangerous for him. It was dangerous for everybody else that he was throwing bits of his equipment uh, on on the track. They didn't do that and they let him take the checkered flag. They demoted him for the, the, the shortcut. That's fine. But at that point, that's their fault, not his fault. Surely they shouldn't penalise him with another three seconds afterwards. They should have either pulled him in or if they haven't done it, they can't make up for their own misjudgment or mistake afterwards, surely? Well, apparently they can. Um, this is the glorious stewards, isn't it? Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, they haven't covered themselves in glory a number of levels. I think I, I agree with um, with Dex. It was a stupid thing to do. Um, very dangerous. Uh, not giving in any way the correct message to anybody. Um, especially riders on the road. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I see riders on the road and they're, you know, they're not properly attired on their sports bikes because it's a hot day. I just think you're asking for trouble. You're asking for the best road rash and worse, worse than that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's tried to make a joke of it um, by uh, um, posting Sitting on his bike to tear, almost yes. naked. Yeah. But, then, yeah. but the one thing I'm surprised about, I'm surprised that they don't wear um, wicking underwear. I thought that would be more... Some of them do. Le- le- leather on skin isn't, isn't the nicest thing on a hot day. Some of them do. Uh, some of them wear under uh, garments like a, um, a barrier lev- uh, layer or a um, uh, um, like I, I actually wear my Valero um, fireproofs, not because they're fireproof, because they are so good at balancing your body temperature. But before that, I used to wear ski uh, wear unders, uh, underwear um, because it, it wicks away because there's nothing worse than than getting sweaty. Right. Dex said we. we absolutely right we shouldn't talk about it but before I leave Quateraro Dex I just want to say he's been showing great maturity this year he's like a different rider Um, now he's had this is he going to be able to keep it together as we move forward because this, this is the first this is the first real knock to him this year and we saw last year he he couldn't take that uh, albeit there was an injury involved as well is he going to be all right yeah, this is the Mike Tyson uh, uh, quote uh, writ large. This is the everybody has a plan till they get punched in the face. <laughs> and uh, 
which I love. And this is exactly, this is exactly it. This is, he had his plan. His plan was to go out and do. Now, what I'm going to say here is his plan stopped working the moment he got repassed by Miguel Oliveira. Correct. So the plan, he didn't get punched in the face here by his chest protector falling out. The punch in the face happened on lap uh, 15. Sorry, beg your pardon. Uh, uh, would have been lap uh, uh, 14. 11 laps to go when Oliveira went by him again and stayed in front of him. Yeah. Because, and and the thing it reminded me of, do you remember in Jurassic Park when uh, the velociraptors are free and they send a professional hunter after them in the first one and he suddenly realizes just before he's eaten that they're stalking him and he says clever girl yeah. and then it eats him yeah and that's if i was fabio quattararo that would have been my reaction when Oliveira went by me <laughs> oh you clever git yeah it's an, you're you're the one playing games with me because Oliveira then said about a yeah. they showed it on the screen nick and i, I think this is the sort of thing i've where he just went, put in basically 140.6s again and again and again and again. And then they showed Quartararo's uh, right, uh, the right side of his front tire, oh. which was like chewing gum. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's let's not play this down, Nick. This is KTM winning. This is Miguel Oliveira, the Portuguese rider. He spent a lot of time in Spain. He loves that area. It was a popular victory um, with Juan... Zarco in second by a tenth of a second. He gave it everything for Pramac Racing. And then Jack Miller um, with another Ducati, the Lenovo team, in third position. Uh, effectively, then it was Mia, by the way, racing uh, solo for Suzuki after the injury to his teammate on a push bike. It's too dangerous. Um, uh, Vinales and Quateraro for, for your top six. Quateraro still leads the world championship. But how good... Is that KTM now? Well, uh, and, you know, you know it's yeah. fast. Well, in the first uh, one, two, three, four, five rounds, uh, Miguel Oliveira scored nine points. Uh, he scored 45 in the last two. Um, yeah, I mean, they've, they're the new frame, um, a little bit of work. You know, they decided to stop moaning and try and make the bike work for the tyres they've got. And I think actually the tyre was also improved. And suddenly, you know, it's got the power. It's almost as quick, almost as, or if not as quick as a Ducati, which we, obviously this is why he was able to get past Fabio down the straight. Um, they're going to have to try and be a, a, tra- a bike for all tracks. They've done well on a couple of similar circuits. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be worrying for Fabio because he's, he's, he's blown a couple of decent chances here. And of course, more unluckily in Jerez. But he's still got a 50-point lead, or sorry, 60-point lead over Miguel Oliveira. Um, so, yeah, it's going to need a, a, a very solid run from KTM and assume that no improvement from the others. Mm. Uh, it, it, another, f- I mean, Valentino fell off, uh, Ikea Corner fell off, Alicia Sparkro fell off. They all they all fell off at the same place as well at turn yes. 10. Um, Mark Marquez fell off. At turn ten as well, I think. Yeah, Marquez. Um, yeah, but I think I think they decided now that they, 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 this whole concept of claiming teams, they've decided they might go for that. So they can avoid they can avoid getting John. a podium for the rest of the season. They'll they'll get themselves um, unlimited testing, extra engines, and everything. Mm. For yeah, next John, year. And joking aside, Paul Sparger has mentioned that, and it's it's worth having a, the conversation. Explain why, now. Dex. Explain why why that's important for them because effectively, if they don't get a top three result, 
they get breaks in the homologation and effectively like if it for talking formula one would be talking tokens it's it's what they can do in the closed season isn't it well they get a di- one of the keys is they get additional they no longer are only allowed to have their factory te- designated factory test rider right so they're basically the whole uh, set of, of of contracted racers can test the bikes but let's talk about the broader picture the fact that we're even having that discussion and that paul asperger even brought that up is is a is absolutely astonishing. Mm. Uh, and I've heard other people say it, and, and we've said it, and I'm going to say it again. They they have to stop thinking about Marquez. They just have to. They have to develop a bike and not a bike for him. Because right now, in the broader picture, HRC's facility, where they have a World Superbike team and a, a MotoGP team, is rubbish. Uh, like, And I'm putting it very bluntly, but how is that important? How is that remotely acceptable? No, it isn't. There, there's John, and and we don't even know if that bike is any good, or historically if it's ever been any good, or is it mm. just him? Yeah, he did a lot of uh, he did a lot of laps in the test, Marquez uh, Nick, um, which is clearly a good workout for him. He's getting back in the groove. Um, I just don't know. I honestly, I I, I can't now decide the situation. Well, I think that the problem is, I mean, I'm surprised they haven't just dug out, um, you know, a bike of exactly the same spec that went to Jerez just over a year, just under a year ago when he fell off it um, and, and see what, because that was working. He was, he, was, he, he was able to put that thing on pole and he was able to uh, carve through the field and Forgy fell off twice in doing it. Um, but the thing's not, it doesn't even like it's got any pace. And yes, he, he showed well in the first few laps, but every, no one was expecting anything. They expected a fade. Now, the big test is next is the next race. Which is at the Saxon Ring, where I think he's won nine in a row, Dex. Something he's done ridiculous. Uh, he it's is unbeaten track. and untouchable. Um, let's yeah, see how Honda it goes there. 10, I think. I think it's ten mm. on. There's a nine for him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, and and it, it might as well be the Marquez Ring. They might as well call it the Mark Marquez Ring, might not they? Really. As opposed to mm. named after a, a heavy metal band from Sheffield. Yes, exactly. Which is very <laughs> odd. Before before we we, we go and um, <laughs> we've got to talk about Zarko. We have to talk about Zarko. Well, yeah, yes, because he's if he hadn't fallen off in Estoril, he'd be leading the championship now. Yeah. We'd be having a slightly different discussion. Yeah, his, that wasn't his fault either. And the, the, the interesting thing, not not just his his massively high main level of performance, but his approach was different this week. He he sat back, he pushed, and then stopped and 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 conserved the tire. And there were times when he dropped into the one forty ones. Uh, but then at the end had everything he needed. Like, to be honest, afterwards uh, in his debrief, Oliveira admitted he had no idea how close he was. He couldn't hear him. Mm. He mm. didn't know he was that close to him at the end. Uh, so uh, he potentially could have nipped by him. Uh, I, I I do love, I do love uh, bikes around there in complete contrast to the cars, but the, 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 the circuit layout is great. I want well done to Remy Gardner, Ralph Fernandez, one two for Red Bull Kitty MIO in uh, Moto Two with Savvy Vieira here coming through in third. Um, I, I'm going to say one quick thing about Moto Three is that we we had another nasty incident in Moto Three. This pack racing in Moto Three is extraordinarily exciting, but it's clearly very very dangerous. There's there's literally no room for ever. Ayumi Sasaki came off and got hit in the head by another rider. Uh, he's going to be all right. He had to go to the hospital. Hematoma on the brain. Remember, he was the uh, 
uh, rider who was one of the riders, along with Jerry Alcover, who who came second, actually. Great recovery from him, who was involved in the the nasty, the very nasty and tragic incident. Uh, with, with Jason Depaschier. Jason Depaschier. Yeah. Um, just... John, here's... Here, I don't know if you... Sergio if you... Garcia, by the way, won yes. the race, and, and Dennis Onchu yeah. was on. But I, I am now getting to the point where I'm almost watching Moto3. I love watching Moto3, but I'm almost watching it decked through my fingers. Oh, 100%. John McPhee had his accident at the at the head of the group because he was yeah. pushing. He was admitted he was pushing to separate himself because mm. he knew what was coming. Mm. And the irony of that is he nearly fell off into the pack. I know. Well, his uh, bike but, came right across and how yeah. it wasn't picked up. But that's the mindset. That's the mindset of of a mature rider who's saying, "Listen, I don't want any part of this. Mm. If I'm going to win this, I have to win this by pushing at the and front." Out this is, yeah, because this is lunacy. Yeah, uh, uh, and it's become I, I don't a lot to do. It's been suggested. I, I read Matt Oxley's uh, uh, column from um, Motorsport Magazine, and he said, "I don't know whether they've got to go up in power or what they've got to do, but they everybody is so closely matched uh, yeah. when they're racing." Uh, and the problem is, Nick, that you can be a second and a half, maybe two seconds off in qualifying, but still be on the back, back of the, the top 15. And that means you're still in there battling because yeah, that's, that's yeah. the way it is. It's just, a, it's just a drag race. As long as you can keep yourself in the toe. You know, that, it was ridiculous at the weekend. We had people s- sitting up coming out of town f- turn 13. So they weren't oh, leading yeah, across like the a line. Bicycle race. Yeah, it, it was like the. It was like qualifying. It's like when people are backing up for qualifying. I didn't like that at all. Anyway, Dex, Nick, thank you very much indeed. Um, I suspect we'll be talking more about this and we'll give it more time later in the season as we're getting into the, the bulk of the the season uh, now. And uh, we'll say thank you very much for the moment for Dex. Thanks for joining us, mate. Family all right, by the way? All marvellous. All right, mate. Good to speak. Or, and by the way, happy anniversary for tomorrow. Oh, well remembered. Oh, happy anniversary. Oh, I want to say happy anniversary tomorrow as well. Yeah, <laughs> and, too and, late. And of course, and what do you then say back? Because they sell or celebrate it on the same day. I say. Oh, you're useless. You absolutely useless sack of stuff I can't say on air. You say happy, <laughs> happy birthday, birthday to me. To you, because it was on your birthday. Yes. Happy yes. birthday. Fifth, yeah, I want to happy birthday to you. We're only 15 and you're a bit more than that. 52, yeah, hooray. You are not. I, I feel 55. You're a bit young. <laughs> He's too young. Happy birthday to tomorrow, kiddo. See you later. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. Declan Brennan joining us uh, from the States uh, and Nick Damon. Uh, let's uh, let's see if we can get Shea, uh back as well because we've got some more uh, American news uh, just before we do that. Not a great weekend to be a, uh, not a great weekend Nick, to be a Pirelli PR rep with the uh, tyre issues uh, in Baku and Mads Osberg uh, launching off into a tirade over the Pirelli tyres <laughs> that didn't do his bidding. But they will have to look at that, I'm sure. Uh, no doubt. Cheers back with us. Hello. Hello. Excellent. Excellent stuff. Uh, we've been um, approved for a bit of overtime because we were a bit late starting tonight. So uh, we've got a wee bit of overtime. And don't forget the Haggerty inside line, inside uh, uh, inside track coming in a moment. Uh, uh, IndyCar. Sorry, Cher. IndyCar news. <laughs> yes, IndyCar yes, well, news with um, well, a shock story about Romain Grosjean. 
Uh, yeah, apparently he's going to be doing an oval. I I can't seem to find any more information on it, though. I, there's only one left on the schedule, as far as I know. Which is? Gateway? Yes. So um, this is something that uh, uh, Tim's picked up, actually. Yeah. And uh, he... The, the point is, on all of this, what car are you getting into? That is that your Audi? Uh, no, no, it's the truck. Had to run to the auto parts store. Never fails. All right. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, the the point was that Roman wasn't supposed to be doing any uh, yeah any uh, any um, oval races, and he's added the Worldwide Technology Raceway Gateway oval race to his schedule, and apparently he's considering. Uh, the Indy 500 for next year. He went there. He enjoyed it, and yeah. uh, he is. He also wants to do Rolex 24. Uh, yeah. Well, and to be honest, John, it, it doesn't come as that much of a surprise that he's got the the lust to do the oval races after Jimmy Johnson experienced much the same going to the Indy 500, being a part of the broadcast, and really feeling that sort of yearn that you get when you're there to participate in it but i am surprised that grosjean is um and i i hate to even put it this way but allowed because i believe it was due to the wishes of his wife that he wasn't participating in the oval races Mm. uh that he is taking that next step but it makes you wonder what if jimmy and Ramon had done the full season this year they would have been in the running for rookie of the year and uh scotty mack might have had a bit more competition and he did 10 laps around the indianapolis motor speedway uh yes before he went to detroit albeit on his bike so yes yeah absolutely so uh, it's still admirable uh very uh apparently it's really piqued his interest listen i'll let you get back to rebuilding the jeep thanks yeah but we haven't talked about Belle Isle. Oh, gosh, of course. That's why I got you back. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Belle Isle at the weekend, Friday and Saturday uh, for us uh, and Friday, Saturday, Sunday for IndyCar. 25 drivers entered. That is the big news of this weekend because Santino Ferrucci is joining Ray Holderman Lennigan for another two races this year. He's going to be doing both of the Belle Isle ones. That was very much unexpected, but it comes on as Hyvie, as uh, his main sponsor, agreed to run him for both of the races. So that's going to be exciting. And two rounds on Saturday and Sunday, as you rightly say, with qualifying being on Saturday and Sunday as well. 70 laps. So they are significant races. You're looking at about 160 miles on each day. It's quite exhausting to go out there. And uh, these races are often weather affected. They move the IndyCar race before the WeatherTech race, because if you can remember the last years that we've had it there, John, our race has been dry and then the IndyCar race has been wet. Yeah. And it's when it's wet there, it blows in. Um, it yeah. blows in very, very quickly indeed. Right now, can I let you get back to build the Jeep? Yeah, sure. i got to go bleed the brakes again. <laughs> okay. See you later, Thank you. Uh, let's finish up tonight with our other live coverage uh, at the weekend. Uh, that was ELMS and Johnny Palmer, who's been, who jumped in mm-hmm. and helped save the day. JP. Good evening. Um, uh, 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 excitement uh, at Ricard at the weekend and uh, a different winner. Yeah, we did. Yeah, absolutely. Because it was starting to develop into a bit of a pattern as we had last year <laughs> with United Auto Sports winning, winning, winning. But the hour of zero one came good. The first time that it had taken victory 
actually since the last race last year at Portimao and a slightly different driver lineup now, Nick De Vries, I mean, imperious in qualifying on the Saturday to stick the car on the front row. Although the start for Roman Rusinov didn't go exactly to plan because he was overtaken by the team WRT Orica round the outside. Subsequently, Yifei was judged to be in the wrong position, though. He was too far back. And I think that gave him the opportunity to get the hammer down earlier than the car he was meant to be alongside. So that was judged to be an illegal overtake in the end. Uh, we had a yellow, we as in a full-course yellow. We had a safety car. We had another full-course yellow as well. That really did for Dean WRT because they came in for a pit stop right before the second FCY hit. And that's just bad luck. I mean, you can't really plan for that. Um, and it left the, the G-Drive Aras out front. So Nick DeFries, Roman Rusinov, and young uh, super kid from Argentina, Argentina, who's now 18 years old, Franco Colapinto, uh, taking victory. So it does spice things up in the championship, certainly. DKR Engineering, with all their success in Michelin Le Mans Cup, finally take a victory in LMP3 in the European Le Mans Series. Never done that before. So well done to Laurence Hoare and to Jean-Philippe Desraux, who's not raced for about 10 years, but is a multi-ice champion in the Andos Trophy. And in GTE, another victory for the Iron Lynx number 80 Ferrari of Matteo Cressoni, Reno Mastronardi and Miguel Moliner. So they keep the championship lead. Uh, and at the weekend, uh, it's you and Bruce for the eight hours of Portimao, WEC, uh, back again. And this is interesting here because it's a eight-hour race. Uh, B, we've got a couple of extra entries. And C, one of those is Glickenhaus. Yes, finally, we get to see the 007 LMH in anger. Only one of them, because the other one has been doing a 30-hour test at Aragon, and the word is that that's gone very well, but uh, logistically uh, not possible to get both cars on side at the same time. We, we will be getting to that point, of course, later down the line, with Monza falling between this next round and the replaced Le Mans. Remember, this was due to be the weekend of the 24 hours of Le Mans, as one or two of the collective have, uh, have reminded us. So, yes, Ryan Briscoe and Richard Westbrook getting back together for the first time since they were in a Ford Chip Ganassi GT, the, uh, the, 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 the new Ford that, uh, of course, went on to have a fantastic year in 2016. But they're teaming back up again. And Roman Dumas, a former world champion in the WEC, part of that lineup as well. The Toyotas have been uh, given a bit more weight. These are the Toyota GR010s, and they are the only hybrid hypercars on the grid. They're going to be running, and I should be able to remember this, at 1066 kilos. Oh, nice. Just have to keep remembering Battle of Hastings, Battle of Hastings. Uh, The Orica has been given a bit of extra weight as well, 22 kilos. That'll take it up to 952. And the SCG, as its first... Uh, race will be running at 10.30, so slightly lighter than the Toyotas. That's a non-hybrid car, though, of course. So we've got a real mix. We've got the grandfathered Alpine, the non-hybrid Glickenhaus, and the hybrid Toyotas. A very, very interesting comment yesterday on the Haggerty Inside Track video that we did yesterday evening UK time. As I said earlier, I was going to pull them out and edit them together. I thought the best thing to do, we had Philip Eng, Adam Christodoulou, and Jim Glickenhaus. Jim Absolutely brilliant. Always has been with us. And, you know, we had him on uh, the show last week when he was leaving the Nürburgring and heading to his dinner reservation. Uh, he came on. He promised us he would come on. Eve is brilliant at, at getting guests for uh, for that show and uh, and all of our shows, actually. And he said, yeah, 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 I'll be travelling, but definitely what do I need to do? Told him. 
and he was actually checking into the hotel as we were about to start the show. He says, don't worry, I'll be fine. I'll, I'll get... So it, it, it was very, very interesting. And I'm not going to spoil it, but I would I would advise uh, and recommend that people stay on and listen uh, for, for the next show, which is the Haggerty Inside Track audio. If you want to go and watch it, it it's on Haggerty's site on their community pages. But the upshot of it is they've got one car here, uh, Johnny, and... We know what Glickenhaus are like. They're, they're not coming to make the numbers up. They'll have two by Monza with the other car rebuilt as they they head towards Le Mans. And, and one thing we know about Jim, and if you listen next, he's not backwards in coming forwards, is he? Certainly not. No, this is a full committed exercise. And it's just great that, you know, with the majority of the manufacturers heading towards the LMH, uh, LMDH, I should say, um, version of the regulations, uh, he is one of very few in, te- in terms of teams wanting to sign up to hypercar and it'll be great to have some straight straight competition to the Toyota because the Alpine is just a hangover from last season. This is a car built to the brand new regulations. He's got some very interesting things to say in the next programme about where he thinks the pace of the car is, particularly at the Algarve um, and uh, where their things might might uh, might end up. It's it's actually worth watching or listening to that show just for the way that Philip Eng and Adam Christodoulou react to Mr. Glickenhaus and how they are clearly um, in awe of how he goes about his motor racing. And they, of course, work for two established manufacturers. But Jim doesn't have to work to those confines, does he? Certainly not. No. Um, yeah. And yeah, and that's the nice thing about it. You know, he's been so passionate so enthusiastic through the years, not least with the Nürburgring 24 hours that we've just had. But now, you know, you're going to be crossing all of that enthusiasm into a brand new championship. And I'm thoroughly looking forward to it. I just remind you, Friday, sorry, Saturday rather, is qualifying. And remember, Portuguese time is exactly the same as UK time. If you're elsewhere in Europe, yes, you fast forward it an hour. But Portugal is what's called Western European summertime. Uh, So 10 to 6 in the evening for the build-up to qualifying, the first oh, wow. session is six o'clock, and we'll be on air till seven. And then the following day, the thirteenth of June, on the Sunday, ten thirty starts UK and Portuguese time for countdown to green with an eleven o'clock race through till seven in the evening. Can't wait. Yeah, and and that fits in really nicely between sessions, by the way, on our Saturday IMSA coverage. And remember, it's Friday and Saturday for IMSA, so practice qualifying on Friday uh, and, and Saturday and then the race on Saturday and all of that falls there's no overlap so you don't have to miss anything Johnny thanks very much for all your hard work tonight um, and over the weekend but particularly for for helping out tonight it was much appreciated Tim Gray was our um, executive producer in exile <laughs> and as he's had to work those things out remotely as well Sam Smith Formula E Racing for the Future will put all those links on uh, on the website and on the collective. And, of course, thanks to our regular contributors as well. There's no time to explain because the Lama's celebrating a wedding anniversary in about an hour and 50 minutes time. I think I might be staying up for a bit of champagne. Uh, see you off the weekend. Bye-bye. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. For more, subscribe to Midweek Motorsport wherever you get your podcasts.